Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series called Crossover Moments, where we explore key moments of personal transformation. We talk to industry experts about the pivotal moments that led them to question and ultimately reject or let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion, breaking defaults and choosing alternatives. In this episode, my co-host Dr. Divya Gioti and I are in conversation with Ken Pucker, who shares with us the story behind his crossover moment that led him to question and ultimately reject conventional approaches to sustainable fashion. Ken's journey into the world of fashion was an unexpected one. Though he's well known for working as Timberland's COO, his interests and roots in the sector are in manufacturing. And at the time that he joined the company, Timberland was still producing their footwear in-house. In this episode, Ken shares his realization that despite the company being considered a leader and a poster child for sustainability, under his watch, their net environmental impact, however you define that, got worse rather than better. He was triggered by the stark realities of unchecked growth and excessive consumption in a world of finite resources. He now works as a professor of practice at the Fletcher School, and like so many of the people we have on this show, I would describe his work today as that of a sustainable fashion critic. He is a particularly strong advocate for legislation and regulation, and I highly recommend checking out one of his more recent publications, A Circle That Isn't Easily Squared, published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. If you're new to this mini-series and wondering what a crossover moment is, I highly encourage you to go back and check out the series intro episode, where we talk about what this term means and why we thought it was interesting to explore. Ken, I wonder if you could just briefly give an overview of your entry point into the world of apparel production and the various positions you've had in the industry, just so that listeners have some context. My entry into the world of fashion was not linear or planned. I graduated from school, from college, and I worked in finance on Wall Street. I really enjoyed it for a couple of years. I left after two years and I took a job at one-sixth the salary, working for a think tank instead, because I wasn't sure if I wanted to ultimately teach and get a PhD or if I wanted to work in the world of business. So I did that for a year. And so I decided I'd go to business school. I ended up at MIT. I thought I'd go back to finance afterwards. But instead, between first and second year, I entered a competition and wrote an essay that led me on a trip to Japan and Korea to visit factories. Japan and Korea in 1990 were, from a manufacturing standpoint to the world, what China is today. And we visited Sony and Samsung and Pusan Steel and Toyota and I think nine factories in total. And I got so turned on. I didn't understand why the principles of just-in-time manufacturing or Kaizen couldn't apply equally in the U.S. And the U.S. was hemorrhaging jobs at the time. And so I shifted gears and I spent my second year focused on 
manufacturing and sourcing, supply chains. I went to work for Varian Associates, who's a multi-billion dollar Palo Alto-based manufacturer of equipment, mostly for semiconductors. And I went to work as a shop floor supervisor in a factory in Lexington. And I did it for a couple of years, but it was an engineering-focused place. And I'm not an engineer. And so I knew that to ascend, I needed to work for something that was simpler, which was consumer. And I ended up at Timberland in 1992, not because I was into fashion, but because it made stuff. And Timberland in 1992 made 100% of its own footwear at its own factories, which was really anomalous. It was outsourcing apparel, but manufacturing footwear. And I focused on footwear. I spent my first year working on creating a scheduling and capacity planning tool for the company was going very fast, but wildly out of control. And then my second job was as a factory manager for one of our factories in Puerto Rico. And I did that for a year and a half. And it was actually, of all the roles I had at Timberland, by far my favorite. I love working in factories. I love the noise. I love the connection to reality. I love the connection to people. I love the opportunity to improve. So much about it I love. I found it hard sometimes to explain to people like what it is, like the materiality that goes into making something to people who are maybe working on papers or projects. or I don't know. It's just different. Unequivocally. You can touch stuff, you can count stuff, and you're re- working with real people. It's less meetings. You know, it's, it's fun. It's just kind of this connection to stuff, you know, and people that is irreplaceable. So I was lucky because I got to work at a place that was growing very quickly. I got to work for the second generation of the family to lead the company. And then I had seven jobs there. My seventh was as chief operating officer working for the third generation to lead the company. And the third generation guy was an interesting character. He was overeducated and a polymath and kind of felt trapped working at Timberland because he was responsible for his family's wealth and couldn't really leave. There wasn't an alternative. And so in year 2000, he refined the mission of the company to be one that he called equal parts commerce and justice. We're now 23 years later, and you don't hear the word justice often mentioned in a business context still. His name was Jeff Swartz, and he was very programmed about what justice meant. It had three components. It was global human rights, citizen service, and environmental stewardship. And we funded all of those activities and measured all those activities from our budget process. None of it was funded through foundation. And we committed to be the best public company in the world at each of the three areas. And I'm not sure we got there, but I think we probably came pretty close. That's a tribute to him because he really focused probably, you know, more than 50% of his agenda on what he called the justice agenda and then proselytizing for the mission that Timberland had created to try to transfer to more companies. And so while I did engage in that agenda, I was not the principal architect or activist. My role was more to keep the trains running on time and to make sure the company delivered on traditional metrics. Because ultimately, if the company is not successful in terms of the way a traditional company is measured and managed, then no one's going to want to listen to the CEO talking about justice. I uh, felt, from a value standpoint, very connected to the agenda. This is maybe the perfect segue. You know, as I said at the outset, one of the things that I think 
brought us here together today for this conversation is in many ways our disillusionment with the way that sustainability is being done. And so I'm curious, you've kind of set the stage for a space where, I mean, it sounds like you thought this work was really important. You were really supportive of it. And I'm curious if you could talk about why you started to question And I've used the word sustainability. You haven't, because maybe at that time it wasn't even (laughs) being called that yet. I like the word justice. I'm curious to hear more about this transition and why you started to question whether this was going to lead to meaningful impact. My questioning didn't really begin until I had a chance to pause and come up for air. So when I was at Timberland, my focus was delivering, as I mentioned, on traditional metrics in keeping with the values of the enterprise. And I was really passionate about it. I cared deeply about the community and the idea of the company. Two events, though, that happened while I was at Timberland were the impetus for me to question whether the justice path we were on was sufficient. One was in I think it was 1997 or 1998, Timberland made a decision to enter the children's shoe market with takedowns, smaller versions of our adult collection. And we had a lot of interest from potential licensees to take that on because children's shoes are different than adult shoes in many respects, are made in different factories, they have different margin structures, they have different size curves. And so we entertained the notion, but we ultimately decided that if it's footwear, we have to be able to do it ourselves. And so we took it on ourselves. and. We weren't expert. The brand meant so much to so many people that when we started the business, it was an absolute rocket ship and we couldn't keep up. And we didn't have the right network of factories or relationships or designers or engineers. And so we had to play catch up. And so as part of that, I remember traveling in one of those years to China to visit with a children's footwear manufacturer who was well-versed in kid shoes. And they were very interested in becoming a partner of Timberlands. And so we went through with them things like how we viewed human rights, what our code of conduct was, how we measured factory partners. And it seemed they were really committed. They then took me on a long ride and ended up in a field in the middle of nowhere where literally I watched, you know, farmers be pulled on plows by oxen. It was just like very, very beautiful and primitive. And stopped the car and said, you know, if you commit to us, we commit to you that in 18 months, we'll have a factory on this site that'll be populated by close to a thousand people that will be making somewhere on the order of a million pairs of shoes a year. And we needed that kind of volume. I didn't believe what they were saying. And they were able to do it. And they became a partner of ours for many, many years as a children's manufacturer. And you say, okay, what does this have to do at all with this question of sustainability? And it wasn't until after the fact, I realized that I had a bunch, and still most people have, I think, a bunch of unstated, unconscious assumptions about what's good. In this case, my assumptions that were unstated included things like more is better, and resources are unbounded. And in China, growth is a positive for lifting millions of people out of poverty. And that GDP growth and corporate growth are disconnected from the planet. That the environment was a subsidiary of the economy. And I'm embarrassed to say that I wasn't sufficiently educated to understand 
the social and environmental consequences and externalities associated with production. Like most executives, my focus was on targets and incentives that motivated commerce. And I didn't have a real appreciation for things like resource scarcity or climate change or limits or boundaries. I didn't bump into those things, you know, in day-to-day work. And it took me time, but I came to realize that the warnings and admonitions of people like Dennis and Danilo Meadows from their book, Limits to Growth, which they wrote in 1972, and NASA scientist James Hansen when he testified to Congress in 1988 about climate change. These folks were spot on, and it's 50 years ago. And what they helped me ultimately understand at its simplest level is it's not possible to grow exponentially in a world of finite resources. And it's also not possible to grow at rates faster than renewable resources are able to replenish themselves. And so when I came to learn more about China's case as an illustration, it's a case study that's unprecedented in human history of economic expansion and lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But so too is their consumption of materials in that process. China, I learned, consumed more cement in three years, 2009, 10, and 11, than the United States did in the 20th century, as but one staggering fact, that China's become essentially a vacuum for resources globally. They're the largest producer and consumer of steel in the world, cement, consumer chickens, pork, copper, you name the resource. And China consumes somewhere between 30 and 50%, at least, of that resource globally. And it's also now the world's largest emitter of CO2. And I don't mean by this jag to blame China. They're not at fault from my perspective, or for the most part. The principal reason that the world's largest emitter is because the US is the world's largest consumer, and the two are connected. And so, in any case, the key lesson for me is that the unstated assumption about the relationship between the economy and the environment was backwards. It's a story that caused me to question, ultimately, you know, can this go on? And what are the implications for our kids and their kids? How do you go from the place you just described, where maybe you're sort of, you've started to question whether more is better, whether resources are unbounded, and how that connects to then what your previous company, Timberland, was doing in terms of justice. And because you would think that if these are sort of the realizations that you're coming to, that then being in an environment like Timberland, which is so focused and really championing justice, where's the disconnect, you know, or where's where's the gap? After I graduated from Timberland, uh, we as a family decided to take a year off and move overseas. It was during that year that I decided to take off that I tried to better understand what Jeff was trying to accomplish with Timberland's justice agenda. And my specific focus was on the third pillar of environmental stewardship. I had a sense of what it meant to perform citizen service. I had a sense of global human rights. I honestly didn't have a sense of climate change or environmental pressures. I didn't understand the science of it. I didn't know how dire the circumstance was. And so I decided I'd try to learn. And that year I spent reading 
and then talking to people. And the more I dug, the more concerned I became. And I then went back and tried to understand, okay, how did we perform? Well, I was in charge at Timberland. I can illustrate that best with you by focusing on just one measure, which is carbon emissions. And if you were to go back now and pull from a Timberland CSR report during the last seven years when I was there, you'd see a chart that shows Timberland CO2 emissions declining double digits every year while our revenue grew double digits. And so you'd think we're knocking the ball out of the park because it's hard to decouple economic growth from emissions growth, and yet Timberland managed to do it. And then if you turn the page, you'd see this cool picture of an outsole, the bottom of a shoe that was used as a graphic. And it showed a line with 4% of the outsole filled on one side, 96% on the other. And what it was to indicate was that the 4% is what we were measuring. We were measuring our scope one and two emissions, and we were killing it on the 4% of the outsole. And what about the 96? Well, we said we wanted to know that, but we couldn't figure it out because there were over 50,000 data points we had to track every six months to get a sense of what our scope three emissions were. And so what we reported to the world was we were killing it on 4%. By the way, the world thought we were great. We were best of breed. We won awards. I went to the White House to accept an award from the Commerce Secretary for Global Citizenship. That was like the state of play in the year 2008 or something like that. And what I can report, sadly, is that not much has changed. If you look at CDP data now, less than half of the public companies, forget private, public companies in the world report on their scope three emissions. And so even though we have all these net zero targets and science-based targets commitments and all this kind of stuff, most of the companies either don't know the majority of their emissions, the value of them, and or don't have plans to address them, even if they're committing to these targets. And so I thought to myself, wow, if we're the global standard or paragon for stakeholder capitalism, what does that say about the rest of the companies? You know, including private companies who really don't have to report on any of these metrics today, at least in the US. And so I tried to understand why that was, and it's pretty straightforward, and I can illustrate with a apocryphal scenario. So imagine for a second, you were the CEO of a public company, and you were really focused on stakeholder capitalism and environmental stewardship and global human rights, and you got on the phone at the end of the quarter, you know, public company CEOs and CFOs have to report to Wall Street and their, their shareholders every 90 days. And you got on the phone, and you said, hey, I have great news to report. This quarter, our revenue shrank by 12%. We were able to cut off some bad accounts and we were able to reduce our markdowns. At the same time, our water usage declined by 14% and our carbon emissions declined by 20, thereby improving our intensity measures on both of our key environmental metrics. And we're quite proud of those results. How do you think Wall Street would respond? Uh, this is why, to me, most efforts to address social and environmental challenges remain performative. And I'll talk specifically just for a minute about the environmental metrics to tell you how I think we're handling this as an industry and how most even public companies are approaching decarbonization. Most of these companies have legitimately stepped up their sustainability reporting They've committed to an ever-growing list of industry-funded consortia. 
could be SAC, could be Global Fashion Pack, could be Global Fashion Agenda. They've declared their fealty to circularity. They've committed to science-based targets and net zero targets. And a small number of companies, including maybe H&M and Nike or Tapestry, have begun investing in some materials and recycling solutions. But unfortunately, none of those actions will result in any appreciable decarbonization this decade. None. The reason for it is because the system structure, goals, and incentives aren't geared to make the planet a safer place or to make sure that workers are cared for. What then does one do if there's Timberland out there as a legitimate paragon? Remember, Timberland had Class B shares with 10 to 1 voting rights. And so the family I mentioned before, and Jeff and his father, Sidney, as long as they controlled 11% of the outstanding shares, they controlled the company, even though it was a public company. So they had more breathing space than the average company in terms of longer-term thinking. And so if Timberland wasn't able to even report on 96% of its emissions, let alone know if it was reducing or increasing, how's the average public company going to be able to address this agenda? And the answer, sadly, is today, based on the structure and rules and incentives, they're not. And that's why we see these I would I call performative theatrics around reporting and consortia and commitments. And those are all disconnected, I think, from action. And it's not because people are dumb or malicious. It's because I think for the most part, the system doesn't incent the right behavior. Your point about incentives really resonates with me, and I'd like to talk about it more. But before we do that, I want to give Divya a chance to respond does what Ken shared resonate with you? What are the emotions or images or metaphors that came to mind as you listened to his experience? I was just completely just smiling and nodding <laughs> constantly, particularly when you talk about the theatrics around reporting and how we are actually celebrating success. But I think the metrics that we are using to define, articulate, measure those successes is questionable. There is a formal conversation and there is an informal conversation. I think when you are in the midst of that informal conversation, everybody recognizes and realizes in some ways that we are barely not even touching the tip of the iceberg and we don't even understand the complexity. And yet we kind of are busy in our day jobs. There's a whole occupation which has emerged, right, around sustainability professionals, which is about measuring, monitoring, and ensuring that we are meeting the indicators. And I think that is one thought that all of that effort and investment, perhaps it's almost what you're saying is we need to really go back to the drawing board. Yes, we recognize that the system within which we are operating and the goals and the indicators that you know we are giving ourselves are perhaps actually part of the problem than part of the solution because they are still within the same paradigm. And the way I you know, talk about it is that it is largely what is referred to as the instrumental approaches to corporate social responsibility. There is so little substantively which perhaps we may be able to influence. So it, it does resonate. It also makes me 
depressed in some ways, but it is not really a surprise. I think whatever you've highlighted and the point around reporting, I could not really agree more. Again, a whole industry being set up around it and half the time it's too much information as consumers. We sometimes cannot follow, even as readers, even as someone who has worked, you know, and undergone all of those trainings. Even then when I try and, you know, look at these reports with my students, even I'm overwhelmed. I think the question which I would want us to reflect on is that with this realization and you've kind of worked in the boardroom and I'm kind of really curious to know having worked there with a very keen committed company where there was breathing space for an agenda which talks about justice if you are feeling what you are feeling and this has been your reflection then what do we really do? So first I'll reflect on this question of reporting and disclosure and action. Read an article that I wrote that was published in Harvard Business Review, surprisingly, called Overselling Sustainability Reporting. We're confusing output with impact. And in it, I didn't mean to, but I guess I coined a term called Sustainability Inc., which is my rendition of what you're describing is we've created an entire infrastructure, literally multi-billion dollar industry of conferences and consultants and accountants who are committed to help companies ostensibly measure more, measure better, multiple different standard setting organizations. I mean, it is a zoo and it is becoming more consolidated now, I think, but I'm not certain it's going to help at all. The reasons are manifold. The first is that in the United States, at least, almost all of this reporting is voluntary, and it's almost all unregulated and almost all unaudited, which is the equivalent of saying it can be a marketing document because you can choose what to measure. If you want to measure your emissions based on scope one and two and not scope three, go ahead. If you want to report on data from three years ago versus two years ago, go ahead. You know, And so now try to be an investor or a consumer trying to look at things and get to comparability, impossible. The first question is, okay, what use is all this reporting? And we're 23 years into reporting. Timberland issued its first CSR report in the year 2001. And I would argue it's gotten us almost nothing. And so a lot of journalists or media types will write about, oh, isn't it really good? 96% of Fortune 500 companies now issue a CSR report. The report isn't the goal. And now why don't you open the report? And what you'll see is what I mentioned before, this mess of measures that aren't comparable, that are incomplete, that involve extrapolation, interpolation, aren't audited. So I would make the case that, first of all, there's a big difference between reporting and disclosure. The reports that we produce today aren't sufficient measures of comparable and audited disclosure like financial reports are. And let's say we got to disclosure. California just passed two bills, one of which requires public companies and private companies above a certain threshold to report on their scope one, two, and three emissions. You think, well, that's great. And it's celebrated within the world of sustainability. And I'm net pro disclosure, okay, and audited information. But let's say we succeed, which I believe you will, if it's the law, will it do anything? And my sad response there is no. The reason is disclosure itself doesn't lead to behavior change. And I'll give you a good example, which is in the United States, there was a piece of legislation passed in the wake of the financial crisis called Dodd-Frank, and it was enormous. And one of the requirements of Dodd-Frank was that public companies report on the gap between average worker pay and CEO pay starting in the year 2017. 
And the reason for that was because CEO pay versus average worker pay has continued to gap over time. You know, in the 1970s, it was probably 20 or 30 to one. It's now 370 to one. And so the idea was, okay, if companies are forced to report on this, investors will pressure them, they'll feel ashamed, CEO pay will come back in line. And the exact opposite has happened. It's because, yes, they are reporting it, but no one cares. You know, investors care about companies delivering on traditional measures. And so if a, a CEO is paid a lot, but the share price increases, who cares? And that's what will happen with carbon. Carbon will get reported somewhere, okay, but it's number 47 on the list of things that a Wall Street analyst or a shareholder cares about. And so, yeah, do they care? Sure. They principally care because if it gets regulated and there's a price put on it, it'll affect the company's P&L. And so, yeah, they do care. How much? I don't know. I think things like gross margin and new product pipeline and geographic expansion and revenue growth and quality of team and strategy matter more. And so I worry that even if we get to disclosure, it won't necessarily lead to action. So I'm not convinced that disclosure alone is sufficient given the same system structure, incentives, and rules. Now, if you're asking me, what do I think we need to do? Okay, that's harder. It's easier to say what isn't working. I don't feel like I have the answer. And so I'm open to alternatives. I can tell you what I think, which is that you have to change either system structure, rules, or incentives if you want behavior to change. One way is policy. I've been working for a couple of years on a piece of legislation in New York called the New York Fashion Act. It's imperfect. It seeks to hold companies accountable for their supply chain impacts. And it uses three different means to accomplish that. One is due diligence. The second is reporting. And the third is achieving legitimate, authentic carbon reductions. And it has a stick attached to it. The IRA, which has been, I think, enormously successful in the United States, it has, it's mostly carrots. This has a stick, which is if companies don't adhere to the requirements of the bill, the New York State Attorney General can fine them up to 2% of global revenue, which is a big, big number. And so I believe that's a change of rules and incentives. It's not a change of system structure. I'm not under the illusion that this one piece of legislation alone is going to be sufficient. So if you want another thing that needs to happen, I think that we need EPR legislation with eco-modulation where synthetics are taxed heavily as compared to natural fibers. Look at how taxation can make a difference. When I was born, the average pack of cigarettes in the United States cost 25 cents. Today, the average pack of cigarettes costs closer to $8. And it's not because it costs a lot more to harvest tobacco. It's all taxes. And smoking is down 70% from when I was born. That's microeconomics. And so if we want us globally to use less of something, we should tax it more. We should tax carbon. We should tax synthetics. We should tax bad stuff so we use less of it. I'm not a big believer in the viability of circularity. It is the win-win solution of the day in the fashion industry. I hope I'm wrong, but I worry that physics and finance and economics and incentives and infrastructure are all massive obstacles to achieve what the industry thinks is a get-out-of-jail-free pass. Policy to change rules and incentives is one path. Can I ask you, because you've sort of separated into three parts, you've talked about incentives, you've talked about rules, and you've talked about structure. 
And I want to ask you, what exactly do you mean by each of those three things? So I'll give you an example of structure first. If I can recommend one book to your listeners, it would be Thinking in Systems by Danella Meadows. It's a layperson's introduction to how systems operate. And the cover of the book has a picture of a slinky on it, you know, the children's toy that climbs down the stairs. And the reason it has that is to say that it's the makeup, it's the structure of the slinky that causes it to behave the way it does. And the principal lesson she tries to impart in the book is that it's the structure of the system that leads to behavior. It's not an individual within the system or an individual company within the system. In the United States, we turn out in the House of Representatives, Congress people every two years, senators every six years, and a president every four years. And invariably, a new president, new senator, new Congress people will talk about challenges related to the U.S. deficit and debt. And our debt continues to grow. It's now $33 trillion. And it's growing at a rate of about $2 trillion a year, and it's unsustainable. And so every time someone new is elected, they come in and say, look, we need a budget balance bill, or we need to cut our spending, or we need to get our fiscal house in order. And yet, Republican or Democratic president, the debt continues to grow. Why is that? It's because of the structure of the system, meaning that if a congressman is elected every two years, he's not going to get up to get elected, or she's not going to get up to get elected and say, hey, I have a great idea. Let's cut spending. Let's increase taxes on our own municipal services because we have to get our house in order because that's no way to get reelected. The way to re get reelected is to spend money on things typically. And so we have a structure, a system structure that until that changes, the behavior of the system isn't going to change. So here's an example of a system structure change that has worked. I'm on the board of a company in Vermont. It's called King Arthur Baking. The company's been around for 240 years. It's 100% employee-owned as of 20 years ago. The fact that it's a net benefit corporation means that institutionally, legally, it has to deliver for its employees and the environment, in addition to traditional economic metrics. It's not that it can deliver just cash flow and EBITDA and then look at how it's doing after the fact for employees and for the environment. They are equal stakeholders. And in the bylaws, independent of who runs the company, the leadership's responsible to those constituents as well. That's a different structure for how to operate a company. And I think and it may not be optimal, but you need to create different structure to get behavior to change in a system. A little while back in this conversation, you talked about intention. These things are not happening because people are nefarious or out to do bad things. And that really resonated with me because I realized when I was working as a factory manager that implicitly I held that assumption, that things happened because somebody was some kind of evil mastermind who put profit above everything else. And then when I was working as a factory manager, I found myself actually doing things that my old self, the student of human rights, would have unequivocally condemned. And that was sort of the trigger for me personally in my own journey to sort of saying, oh, I didn't realize I had this assumption, but actually I did. It's been actually really critical for me because I agree with you. I don't think intention has anything to do with it. And yet the gap that I see is that I think a lot of the ways that we enact sustainability today implicitly are premised on the idea that the root cause of these issues is bad intention. Like if we just 
check on people better. You know, if we have them report on what they're doing or disclose what they're doing, or if we go and audit them, the issues will resolve themselves. When actually your definition of structure is very useful because it's not somebody's intention that makes them necessarily behave a certain way, it's the structure. But then the example that you gave with the flower company, right, this is a way of structuring a company. And what I'm sort of wondering is like, I often felt as somebody who was managing a company that there was like only so much within my control and I wanted to do things differently, but it was the world around me that needed to change in order for me as a company to be able to enact those things. And so I think this model of like, you know, looking at different company structures or legal incorporations or whatever is, is, is really interesting in terms of shaping the structure of a company. But I guess where I'm sort of uncertain still is whether it's through legislation or through other initiatives, how do we then also sort of focus on like changing the sort of broader operating context within which a company operates? You are correct that the solutions that I proposed are kind of what I would call within the boundaries of our current thinking about how the world should operate. And that is not nearly as leveraged as the number one thing that we can change, which is our mental models, unstated assumptions, and paradigms. So imagine if we did really believe that the economy was a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Or imagine if we did believe that bigger wasn't better or that GDP was the right way to measure. That can happen, okay? I just don't think you can count on it. Uh, and you can work towards it, but I can't plot for you an answer when our mental models are going to change. But I can give you an example. I went to a baseball game and at maybe like the third inning while we we're still there, they put on the message board this couple where they typically in the game had set it up so someone proposes to someone else. It was two women and they were seated maybe four seats over from us and one proposed to the other. And everyone started clapping and they put them on the big board. And my wife starts crying and she's so excited. And I said, what, what, what's going on? It sounds like you're, you're enjoying the baseball game. And she's like, I could give a shit. You know, what I care about is the fact that people's response to the fact that two women are getting married was so affirming. And that wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. And it may not be the case in some states in this country today, but there has been a paradigm shift, at least in the parts of the world that I travel, around things like gay marriage. And that's powerful. Will that shift happen such that bigger isn't better and consumption's not worshipped and GDP's not worshipped? I, I can't tell you. I can tell you I have some ideas about how to push towards that paradigm change, but that's, that's the hardest thing to do. As you were speaking, I'm almost thinking that structure is the house, right? And the rules or policies are the principle by which we conduct ourselves within the house. That was the visual image that, that got evoked as you were speaking. What we need to do is take the house down. Because even if we were to come up with legislations, and I think that's where I am a bit skeptical on, you know, solely relying on legislations, because one is just the time they take. They are often almost a reflection of, you know, once the consciousness of the society has been awakened up to a point is when legislation kicks in. So one, that process itself. But then even if we have the most robust and mature frameworks and guidances and legal instruments, my current work, which is situated in Leicester, 
UK is one of the economies which one of the most kind of you know mature laws but once you see the kind of issues which are happening you wonder you know so even if we were to kind of come up with really you know mature rules would that be enough now you spoke about the the stick approach and maybe that would be a deterrent or would that lead to more creative articulation and you know creative adjustments of the way businesses enact behaviors and, and which is where i think your example about king author bakery really gives me some hope because that's a change of structure and maybe that's what we need that we actually redefine what is valuable and maybe that's where we almost kind of change just these metrics by which we are defining company successes in some ways i am very skeptical about these ratings as well because i think they are again a bandaid kind of a job on the existing narrative but if we were to kind of value different things and i don't know maybe humanize the whole process a little more perhaps that would help us think differently we can come up with whatever rules and we can maybe change some behaviors but if we do not dislodge the structure and i think we need to maybe revisit the foundations it will be very hard and you said a very interesting point when you were talking about how your role within the company was to make sure that we kept performing on the existing traditional metrics while doing the other things and i think that is what perhaps needs a reexamination in our conversation when we think about addressing the crisis that we talk about because it's that is that oh we we sustain the status quo and do something on top of it when actually maybe that's what needs a reexamination Danella Meadows also wrote an article called something like the 12 or 14 leverage points that most affect system behavior and it literally ranks in hierarchical order from 14 to 1 kind of the system interventions that have the least to the most impact at the far end of the spectrum number 14 or number 12 is parameters where we spend 99% of our time should we manage our payout for our bonus system this year at a third ebitda a third cash flow and a third revenue growth or should it be 60% ebitda and 40% cash flow and we have meetings about this and talk about it and that's a parameter right it's not going to change this how the system really operates number 1 and 2 on it are changing paradigms and mental models that's like do we need a house at all if we're going to build a house should it be based on sufficiency as opposed to size and i think that's the level that is most effective if we want to change how the system behaves it's just that i can't draw a line linearly from x to y that'll change have mental models or paradigm it is hard i think greta thunberg is a great example of someone who's an agitator to change mental models okay and i think that is a way to do it the most powerful way to do it is to challenge current assumptions in a powerful way why we came up with the concept for this mini series was because i think like this shift in mindset is critical this sort of personal transformation because that is how we shift mental modes but where i'm at is if i sort of pause and take a look at the world around me i say how i feel is that more and more people sort of seem to have the professed values right like what i mean by that is like most people say Yeah, I, I think sustainability whether in fashion or in general is a good thing. I, you know, believe in these things. I think they're important. But for me, the like mental mode or the mindset or the belief 
that sort of remains something in need of transformation, let's say, is like, why are these bad things that we are now at a point where we all more or less agree are bad things, why are they happening? I think implicitly, a lot of people believe that these bad things are happening because there are malicious people out there. Whether on the brand side <laughs> or on the supplier side, you know, you've got the trope of the evil factory manager, but equally the, the evil brand who only cares about profits. And what I sort of wonder is actually, is it inequity? Is that the house that we need to be talking about? Because I feel like so many of the interventions that we come up with are sort of based on how do we control someone. And if the intervention is based on how do we control someone, then implicitly what you're saying is they have the wrong intention and we've got to check up on them, when actually maybe the interventions need to be looking at inequity. I agree the wrong place to look is, you know, the evil factory manager, the evil brand. They both exist, okay? But they're the outliers in my view. And they're not the source of our challenge. It's a fool's errand. The bigger context for change is, you know, structure and paradigms and things like that. And to your question, is inequity part of the challenge? I think it's at least as big a challenge as the environmental challenges. They're certainly related. <laughs> I would tell you, though, also that in keeping with your challenge of the paradigm of people need to be controlled because they're evil, I think another really, really wrong turn we've made is the definition of sustainability. I think it's mortally flawed. Now, first of all, you could say, wait a minute, how do you define it? And that's part of the problem because everyone gets to choose. And the only definition that I subscribe to is one that's used by an organization called Reporting 3.0. And they say, if you want to measure stuff and if you think that's important, you have to measure all these consumption metrics against planetary boundaries. It's not just, did I do better this year than last? It's, did I do enough? given my industry, given my size, given my impact to help us live within the donut, you know, Kim Rayworth and planetary boundaries. And if you look at sustainability reports today globally, less than one half of 1% of any public company, even audited sustainability reports, talks in those terms. And so what we think is sustainable is nothing close to what's required. I think just one point which I would want to add to what both of you have said is what do we consider is valuable is the key guiding thought for me because I think that kind of helps us then think about, you know, what is prioritized. But I think a connected point which I do want to make is that often we talk in absolutely generic, broad terms, especially when we are talking structures and, and systems and organizations, whereas it's all people it's those individual negotiations, conversations, transformations, which then eventually has a cumulative effect. What I try and do in the classroom is actually encourage these young minds as they are planning to step out to think about these issues and to begin to challenge assumptions. But I think the challenge is, and, and this is a conundrum, you know, which I face, that I kind of give them all this fuel and then they are out there experiencing the real world, which is measuring the key matrices. And it's actually, they become much more uncomfortable because now their consciousness is kind of awakened, right? What is really ethical behavior? And it's, I think 
it's very important and that's kind of connecting back to our motivation for the series that there are these individual perspectives and narratives which do matter which can influence the way what becomes as a system you know what we regard as valuable and i think how we work within that and one way is perhaps you know you talk about inequity is actually just enabling conversations in the first instance at least that's the first bit where we can open up spaces now there are supplier forums for example right which have been set up and at least that's a conversation that's an opening i think we haven't really gotten that far when it comes to workers within the industry that we are talking about now the challenge is that the planet doesn't speak to us in the way you know so there is no that kind of conscious conversation but there are silent ways in which you know there is a conversation really happening and and honestly we keep saying this and which is why i agree with you the point around you know the the planetary boundaries that the planet doesn't need us and i think if we have to sustain and continue the way we are working i think it's about us really thinking the sooner we make those paradigm shifts the better because everything else is otherwise just incremental because we've agreed with each other so much i want to disagree with something you said just for fun i agree with 99% of what you said but you said the planet doesn't speak to us and that's one of the things i'm really optimistic about is i think the planet does speak to us and it's speaking loudly and the reason i believe that in this country different from others there's more activity and attention focused on these challenges is because people's houses are burning and right now on the mississippi river water levels are so low that the army corps of engineers is working in louisiana to try to push back salt water from the ocean which is encroaching on the river and so i think the planet's talking i wish it weren't this way and i think that will ultimately drive motivate different behavior it is communicating but i don't think we are listening and i think that's oh, that's Oh i agree i know i i know we're challenge. aligned i just wanted to have fun for kim yeah. and create some kind of controversy <laughs> that's okay thank you this was interesting and i think whenever we kind of come together for conversations with you it's almost all these big problems big <laughs> challenges which are really abstract in some ways but i would just say that maybe one it's kind of really helpful to know and recognize these individual moments and journeys in transformation which to me despite all our inability to change structure do offer some glimmer of hope if we kind of recognize and mark those moments and we just join those dots together maybe it is possible to you know raise questions and try and do things differently Well I've enjoyed the conversation. One thing I worry about, I was just trying to picture like would the me of 20 years ago have listened to this and would I have been open to hear it? And I don't think I would have because I would have been too wrapped up in my current world view and too busy with my job and my kids to pay attention. And that's why I think people like that to make a huge difference because she forces people to listen. I was thinking about how to be more effective and how a conversation like this can be heard and I'm not sure of the answer. Well, I sort of see myself kind of as an insider outsider in the sense that I'm working in sustainability but I also feel I'm working against sustainability not in the sense that I disagree with the objectives of sustainability but I don't necessarily think that the way we're doing it makes sense. And I feel like 
there's appetite for that perspective increasingly. And there's an interest in it, but people aren't necessarily sure what to replace it with. And that, I, you know, I think the fact that we're here, that we're having this conversation, that people listen to this show, that I'm somehow managing to make a living as a freelancer, sort of as a sustainable fashion critic, let's say, is a testament to the interest. Then the question is, and that's what people I think struggle with, is what do we do instead? And I think that that's very much still emerging. It's not necessarily defined. And maybe, Ken, I was thinking about your point on definitions, and I've been thinking a lot about definitions as well lately. And it it sounds sort of so mundane, unimportant almost. But I actually think maybe it's a an interesting place to start because, and I've shared this with Divya before, but I've also been thinking a lot about this term sustainability. And I've recently been reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Kendi. And as I've been reading that book, I've been thinking, God, this book, like if we just switched out some of the language about race to apply it to our sector, it makes so much sense. And what I mean by that is he starts with definitions and he defines racist. The opposite of racist is not not racist. It's anti-racist. And, you know, what he means by that is that it's kind of impossible to be not racist. Because as we've been talking about in this conversation, it's the structures, it's the house, it's the world around us. And if you are part of that, you can't escape it. So all you can do to be anti-racist is to work on actively dismantling that house. And I was thinking about the sort of equivalent for our world, and I sort of thought, okay, maybe the opposite of unsustainable is not sustainable because actually in our world, sustainable doesn't exist. It's not possible without changing the house. Maybe the opposite of unsustainable is to be, and this is clunky, but is to be anti-unsustainable, right? And to sort of articulate what is it about our house that needs dismantling and to sort of benchmark ourselves, or to evaluate ourselves or to sort of set as our direction things that work on dismantling those things as opposed to sort of trying to create something which just is not possible to create sort of within a certain structure or within a context. Well, you said something I think really important, which is you've managed to make a living as a freelancer who's both within and outside the system. And why I think that's important is because that's really hard. I don't have that burden, right? Where I'm fortunate in that if I don't have a consulting gig, I'm okay. There's a great Upton Sinclair quote that says, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. Mm. It gets to this point about you're able to make a living while you're being an you know, anti-unsustainability person <laughs> is, 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 is really hard. And you're the exception, not the rule. Because even if people wanted to pursue the path you're pursuing, it is not easy. It is a wild-ass uphill climb as compared to go along to get along and live in a big house. And so that's something also we got to think about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys both for this wonderful conversation. It's been fueling and energizing, and I'm really grateful. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. 
And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.